0: Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Bill. Uh, and this morning, Randy has asked me to speak about another defining quality or feature of the Vineyard Movement, and it's captured in a phrase that, that is actually the title of a book written about the history of the Vineyard. The book is called "The Quest for the Radical Middle" by Bill Jackson. Any of you? Heard of that book or that phrase? You're familiar with that phrase? Okay, Quest for the Radical Middle. If you're curious about the background, the history, the formation of the vineyard, I really recommend it. Great read. Uh, history and kind of how things unfold is, is, is so much more helpful in terms of understanding uh, what an organization, what a, a group of people really are. So I recommend that to you. What is the Quest for the Radical Middle? Here's how Bill Jackson and other vineyard leaders put it. Okay, This is a quote. The vineyard seeks to blend the best of the evangelical traditions with their focus on Christ-like character and regard for scriptures with the best of the Pentecostal and charismatic traditions of welcoming the empowering of the Holy Spirit for life, ministry, and acts of service. Did you catch that? So the quest for the radical middle is trying to bring together the best things from evangelicalism and the best things from kind of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement, the idea put forward is that a healthy church, a healthy church movement is able to hold together two sides that are in tension, valuing both and without letting go of either. So a couple quick illustrations, mental pictures, (laughs) if you will, excuse me, the church is like a tightrope walker. You guys ever seen a tightrope walker up high on a iron? And they got the pole and the you know it's a question of balance, right? Balance. If you if you start leaning too far to the right or to the left, it can be an issue of life and death, right? Thank you. Right. So you got to keep your balance. You don't want to be moving one way or the other. You might fall. Or uh, it's like The Word, Jesus, the Word, and the Holy Spirit are like two rails of a train track. If one of those rails gets damaged or removed, what happens to the train? Yeah, it stops moving. It crashes. It becomes debilitated. It's no longer able to do what it was meant to do. Now, one of the things that is fairly apparent to me, in my experience as a Christian in the West, and in the United States in particular, is that denominations tend to move towards one end of the spectrum or the other. Does that, does that resonate with you? Not only can I see you, I, have, I can't read your response. But, uh, right, We tend to have a preference for one end or the other, and it generally comes with, I think, a suspicion or fear of the other end. So, for instance, what would you say, how how do most evangelicals feel about Pentecostals and Pentecostalism? They're weird, loud, money-hungry, emotional, uncontrolled. Yeah, so there's kind of this hyperactivity of emotionalism, feels a little bit manipulative. Sometimes, I mean, there's enough... Uh, Tammy Faye Baker, Jimmy Baker scandals that you're like, okay, this is all about money. Um, how about Pentecostals? How do they feel about evangelicals? What's the sus- underlying suspicion or fear? Cold-hearted. Cold-hearted. No, power. Okay, no, no real power in their experience? Legalistic. Legalistic. Yeah, I think probably one way of summarizing it would be dead orthodoxy. Right? They, I mean, they know the scriptures, but they don't know the God who is in the scriptures. Right? There's a lack of real experience. So as I thought about the message this morning, uh, I thought it might be more helpful to tell my own story. I recognize that not everyone will be able to identify with my experience. But I think some of you will, and I'm hoping that those of you who don't, Perhaps you'll still be able to at least relate to what I'm saying, even if you're coming from the opposite end of the spectrum. All right? Let's pray real quick. Lord, I, I just pray you'd help me, that you'd help all of us. Lord, we want to know you more. We love you. We're grateful for the way in which you've touched our lives. And I, I just pray that this would be a helpful uh, conversation this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So my story begins in 1976. Some of of that's going to feel like ancient history. I know I was 16 years old. I was a junior in high school. uh, And if you were alive back then, this was a period of time when Idi Amin was kind of a dictator in Uganda, going insane from disease and killing off the leaders of the church. There was a man named Festo Kavinjuri who escaped from Uganda, and there were a number of churches in my hometown connected to him, and they decided to organized an evangelistic outreach down at the high school football field. So my parents, who were kind of Easter and sometimes Christmas churchgoers, uh, but really not involved in the church, decided it was important to take me and my middle sister. My oldest sister was already at college at that point in time. And so we went down to this outreach. Now, I had a powerful experience. Uh, I, I was just impacted by Festival of Covingry's explanation of God's love as he taught about Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. So when there was an invitation to come down and receive Christ, I immediately popped up, went down to the football field, and I had kind of this out-of-body experience because my body was just shaking, just quaking. And I thought, that's weird. But I prayed the prayer. I went home. As I was going to bed that night, I was Still a little bit confused by everything that had happened. And, I, and when I went to sleep, I just said, okay, God, if you're real, you just got to make it clear to me. Went to sleep. The morning can't really, again, I can't explain this rationally. All I can tell you is that when I woke up, my heart was filled with joy. Don't know why, but I knew that that joy was God. God was real, and he was the source. I can never, ever go back against that experience. Totally subjective, but incredibly powerful, incredibly real. Now, after I became Christian, this is like November of my junior year, I immediately got involved with an organization called Young Life. How many of you are familiar with Young Life? Okay, good number of you. Uh, The best way I can explain Young Life is probably two ideas. One is uh, this phrase, incarnational ministry you heard that phrase, incarnational ministry? So incarnational ministry just means that like Jesus, who was God, but then took on human form so that he could kind of brush shoulders with us and connect with us, uh, ministries that are incarnational, rather than expecting people to come to them, they go out and try to embody the message of the gospel among the people. So... Like this church. We don't expect people to show up here randomly on Sunday morning to incarnate the gospel means we actually go out at work in other places, build relationships, and become places of invitation, right? For people to understand who God is and what he's like. The second phrase that I think helps helps you understand young life is this maxim it's a sin to bore a kid. So that if you want to read the history of young life, that's the title, just like Quest for the Radical middle is the title for the vineyard. So if you go to a Young Life meeting, it's fun. Lots of skits, lots of games, lots of activities, and a short message about Jesus, right? So if you, that's what a weekly meeting, that's what their camps are all about. Now, the one message that I remember most clearly, most vividly from my couple years in Young Life was a talk in which one of the leaders explained that evangelism is, quote, one beggar telling another beggar where the food is. Does that resonate with you? Evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where the food is. Now that resonated with me. Because I knew I was a beggar. I really believed that Jesus was real food. And I had a very clear sense that most of my friends were hungry. Right? Right? So it helped me, that talk just kind of helped me begin to share my faith with my friends in high school. So I was very involved in sports in high school. So most of my relationships, friendships were with other guys that were on these teams. And over the course of the next year or two, many of them became Christians. And then we became avid Young Life supporters, right? So every Tuesday night there was a meeting. We're constantly handing out flyers. We could all drive. We had our driver's license. I had a big old station wagon. And we would just go pick up as many kids as possible and take them to the Young Life meeting. And Young Life started growing pretty rapidly. We, uh, one of the more memorable meetings uh, was it, actually in my house. My parents, <laughs> I don't know why, but agreed to host a Young Life. I think they wanted to know what in the world was going on. And we had 300 students hanging out in our, you know, living room front porch. I mean, it was just crazy, right? Kind of a biblical scene, if you will. So, I want to just pull the the camera back for a moment, though, and make a couple observations. As you can probably tell from my story, Young Life is an evangelical organization, right? I loved it. The focus was on... Sharing our faith, it was, focuses on Jesus. And I really had no understanding or exposure to the Holy Spirit. He was simply ignored. Right? Uh, no one ever talked to me about the work of the Spirit. It really wasn't until many years later, actually when, ta- when someone was talking about the Quakers and the Quaker movement, because of the Holy Spirit, that I realized, oh, that's what happened to me at my conversion that my body shaking was simply my physical reaction to the presence of God's Spirit. It's like, oh, isn't that interesting? The other thing that I did not realize until many years later is that what seemed normal to me during those high school years was actually a powerful move of God that I happened to be kind of caught up into, right? I mean, I I thought sharing your faith and people becoming Christians was easy. It's like picking low-hanging fruit, you know? It's like... But in fact, there was a, 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 I don't know if you want to call it renewal, revival. I mean, this is the late 70s in Southern California and across the country, lots of stuff was happening because the spirit was moving. I mean, people now refer to it as the Jesus movement or the charismatic movement or the third wave. I don't know if you've heard of any of those labels. So I didn't realize it at the time, but the Holy Spirit had been at work in my coming to faith, had been at work and all these evangelistic experiences where people were becoming Christians, but I just didn't have a category for it. So the next stop in my story is InterVarsity Christian Fellowship while I was in college. How many of you have heard of InterVarsity? Okay, we're getting getting warmer here, all right? Uh, InterVarsity is another evangelical parachurch organization. It's known for three things. InterVarsity Press, how many of you own a book from IVP? We need more readers in here. <laughs> All right. The second is a every three-year student missions conference called Ur- Ur- Urbana. you heard of Urbana? used to be actually in Urbana, Illinois, which is why it got that name. Now it's in St. Louis. I think it's about 20,000 students that gather together every three years. It's a really wonderful, powerful event. And the third thing is that InterVarsity does college campus ministry. So when I moved into campus for my freshman year, I immediately got involved with InterVarsity because there was a Bible study in my freshman dorm. And this was my first exposure to what I've come to know as inductive Bible study. So inductive Bible study, we'd get together in somebody's dorm room, there'd be a Bible passage, we'd all take some time to read it, make some basic observations, start asking questions throw out some possible answers, and then kind of say, okay, what what, what makes the most sense? Just loved it. Fell in love with it. And then I found out that there was actually something called the Mark Study, which was like my dorm Bible study, only a little more structured and a little more intense. Two hours long each Sunday afternoon. Uh, And this is where I fell in love with Bible, studying the Bible with other people, and where I embraced Evangelical convictions about the inspiration and authority of scripture, right, and really, I would say where I fell in love with how beautiful scripture is and the story especially the gospels the story of Jesus, so my early years now this is two years in high school, four years in college, I was being immersed in Christian evangelical organizations that grounded me in evangelism, that grounded me in a love for scripture. I am incredibly grateful for those organizations, those people. And this is what I consider to be the best of evangelical traditions. Now, this is the best of one side of the spectrum. Now, I was involved with InterVarsity for four years as an undergrad and then eight years on staff. Peter here was also on staff. Uh, this is where I met my wife, Becky, who was also on staff. And through an interesting process, I began to wonder more about. The Holy Spirit. When I had gotten involved with InterVarsity as a student, the vast majority of my peers were kids from Young Life or kind of Presbyterian mainline youth groups. Once I went on staff, one of the things that was interesting is our our group continued to grow, and a large number of the people that started coming in either came in through conversion, no, no church background, but just became Christians kind of through the outreach of InterVarsity, or were Catholic. And were attracted. They wanted to study the Bible. InterVarsity is a non-denominational organization. So that's great. Perfect. Then, in the last few years, while I was on staff, we started getting this influx of kids from Pentecostal charismatic backgrounds. And the way I found out about it was that several students started coming to me and saying they were worried about what was going on. I'm like, well, what, what's going on? Well... These students were approaching people in the fellowship and asking if they could pray for them to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues. How many of you have had that experience? All right. Now, you can imagine, part of the leadership of this fellowship, that's really not a focal point. Actually, it wasn't really the experience of me or any other people on staff. But we recognize oh, yeah, we know that there's a Holy Spirit. We see the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, speaking in tongues as a gift. So I was like, okay, what do we do? So I started. I just started meeting with these students, you know, about eight to ten of them. And in the course of the conversation, just trying to say, hey, is there is there a way we can go forward? I, I acknowledge these are biblical ideas. I don't really know what to make of them yet. I, I uh, And it's certainly not part of my experience. But I also don't want these things to be at the forefront of what people have to deal with when they are part of a university, We feel like we've been called to other things, you know, Bible study, fellowship, evangelism, missions, all those things. Uh, So if you can be discerning, if you can be discreet and have a little more wisdom in terms of when and how you talk about these things, give us a chance to explore it, and we'll see if we we can do it. Now, these were really great students. We had great conversations. They said fine, and they really did a wonderful job. And then we as a staff team said, okay, time to let's study acts, let's explore. And in fairly quick succession, a few things happened. First thing that happened is that we went on this student leadership retreat up in the mountains where there was snow. So it involved some skiing. And one of our student leaders, a guy named Jason Jensen, hurt himself on the ski slopes, tore up his knee that he'd already had reconstruction surgery on. Jason is now on the national leadership of InterVarsity. And we got back to that. He couldn't put any weight on it. We got back to the cabin. We thought, oh, well, let's pray for him. My hand happened to be on the bottom. Everybody else's hands were on top. And we started praying, and immediately I just started feeling things moving around. By the time we were done, his knee was completely healed. I was like, What in the world (laughs) just happened? You know, and again, it wasn't Pentecostal. I mean, it was just... uh, uh, And honestly, uh, I've wondered about it. I called Jason about 10 years ago. I said, Jason, did that really happen? He said, well, yeah, that happened. Because you you begin to wonder, right? It's like, okay, that happened. Second thing that happened um, was that we were introduced to a, a, a gentleman named Doug Drake, who... A uh, couple of his kids were in the fellowship, and he had become a Christian while he was the chaplain at Occidental College. Now that's gonna, that sounds a little funny, right? So he he was a part of a fairly liberal mainline denomination, didn't really have any real belief or connection with Jesus, and became a Christian through the university group on the campus, and then got exposed to John Wimber and the Vineyard. So he came, we you know, again, we're trying to explore this, so we invited him to come and he led a conference for the fellowship on listening prayer and used a book by a Catholic priest named Francis McNutt. It's a book called Healing. How many of you have been exposed to this? a great book. It's really written for a Catholic audience, but just a terrific, terrific book if you if you never read it. So he came, we started okay, listening prayer, we're gonna experiment with this listening prayer, and we just started meeting as a staff team weekly to do that. And then I went to my first vineyard conference in Southern California, and the conference was titled, What is the Holy Spirit Saying to the Church Today? Now, again, two things really stood out to me. Uh, the first, and this may strike you as a little bit odd, but the first was that John Wimber taught from the Gospels. I mean, it, it, If you go to seminary, what you realize is that most mainline evangelical theology comes from what? The epistles, Paul's letters. That's where we get words like sanctification, justification. I mean, all those theological concepts. So that's, if you start reading theology, it's all from Paul's letters, right? Pentecostal theology, where does it come from? Yeah, the book of Acts, because that's where you get the phrases baptism in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, right? Well, here I am at this vineyard conference, and John Wimber's just going from gospel, you know, passage to gospel, passage explicating the kingdom of God theology that Randy's been talking about for the last few weeks. And I'm like, well, isn't this ironic? Because that's our wheelhouse, right? I mean, if you went to inter- varsity at our school and. I mean, we what we did, we did the parables of Jesus, we did the Sermon on the Mount, we did the Gospel of Mark over and over and over again. We also did other things. We did Old Testament books, we studied epistles, we studied it. But if you went through our fellowship over for years and you didn't know the parables, Sermon on the Mount and the Gospel of Mark, you weren't really involved. All right? And here we are at this vineyard conference. And I'm like, wow, we're going through all these passages that we know, but this is really a different take. Right? And what I realized is that even though we were theologically Trinitarian, pragmatically we were Binatarian. Do you know what I mean when I say that? I mean, we believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the creeds. But in terms of our own experience and practice as a fellowship, we really only believe in the Father and the Son. Didn't have any real expectations that God would heal people or that deliver people from demonic oppression. We were just... Pragmatically, binaterian. Second thing that happened in the, uh, out of that conference is that John Wimber said this sentence. Faith is spelled, how do you spell faith? R-I-S-K. Ah, see, you know that one. Uh, R-I-S-K, not F-A-I-T-H. Risk is spelled R I S K. So, you know, and what he meant is, you know, if you're going to grow in learning how to listen to and respond to God, you just, it, it requires a risk. There's no other way around it. So I got back to campus. I was trying to be responsive to what I'd seen and heard. I'm sitting in uh, Memorial Church, or Memchu is what it was called. And, and it's a big building. And I'm sitting in the back, kind of having my quiet time. And there's only one person I can see. And she's, you know, near the front of the church. And I feel like the Holy Spirit is prompting me to go talk to her. Now, if you're like me, I was mortified. I was like, no. Do not want I just don't. How uncomfortable, how awkward is that? I'm a guy. She's like, oh, it's gonna, we're the only ones in here. That, I don't want to make her nervous. I don't, You know, it's, it's just. But I also didn't want to do nothing. Right, so I'm like, okay. So I get up. I walk down towards her. And then I peel off and start walking around the church. <laughs> reading what's on the walls. Uh, and then notice that in one of the other alcoves, you know, church had a couple of alcoves. There was another person in there. And then I chickened out, went, sat down, and as soon as I sat down, that other person came to talk with me. And he's a, been a lifelong friend. Uh, he's actually our youngest son's godparent. He actually he features in the next couple of stories I'm going to tell. But so we we start up this friendship now. I wish I could say that my experience of listening to the God and becoming sensitive to the prompts of the Holy Spirit took off from there. But in truth, it was the exact opposite. How many of you can relate to that? Mm, Okay. So Becky and I were married in March of 1990. It's our last year on staff. In August, we left for Costa Rica on a year-long sabbatical. Uh, in our third month, month of marriage, Becky became pregnant with our first child, who was actually born in Costa Rica. And two things stood out from our time there. The first is, we visited like three or four different churches over the time that we were there, and every single church was both evangelical and charismatic. I, I, I came to describe it as, th- these are not either-or churches, they're both-and. And I thought, how interesting is that? Here we're not in the Western culture, but in some other place, and there's not this tension, there's not this divide that I see in the U.S. The second thing that happened is that we had three really profound prayer experiences, in which people gave us words. Now, and and I, these are people that didn't know each other. They're all in different churches, different settings. And they all gave us a word that was almost exactly the same as the others. I mean, almost word for word about Becky's pregnancy and our first child. So, the effect it had on me was kind of twofold. The first is, sort of like praying for Jason's knee, I was absolutely convinced that God can speak to us in the present. And, Absolutely convinced God did that through other people and not me. Right? I mean, you can't ever go back. You have that kind of experience. It's like, okay, this is beyond coincidence. It's, you know, it's not magic. This says only God can do this. And I was frustrated to no end. Like, why is it not that kind of clarity for me? So struggle continues. After our sabbatical ended, I went to Fuller Seminary to get an MDiv and a Ph.D., that was the idea, kind of with the dream of teaching somewhere overseas in a pastoral training center or a seminary. Can't give you all the details, but by the end of the MDiv, three years, we had three children. I was getting paid half-time for working at a church full-time. Can I get an amen? All right, okay. <laughs> right? And, you know, I got into the Ph.D. program, started getting, did all the languages, got my into my first... Day seminar and realized this is not going to work. I mean, I, we can't make ends meet financially, be parents, and I can't read 600 pages a week and write a paper. This wasn't going to happen. So we were like, okay, what are we going to do? So this friend who approached me at Memchu and who actually had been with us uh, in Costa Rica, he, he was with us, he also had gone off to grad school, got married, and landed in Seattle at this small church that was looking for a pastor. So they gave us a call. Right now, for those of you who are not familiar with the Assemblies of God, it's one of the bigger Pentecostal denominations, not just in the U.S., but around the world. And even though I had no experience with the Assemblies of God, I was hired because this church, a small church, had been planted as an outreach to the University of Washington, and both of their previous pastors were campus ministry people. So there was a very good fit. I mean, it was just we matched wonderfully. But the church hired me without me being licensed. So several months, we've moved, we're up there, I've been, and then at times it becomes time to get licensed. So at this licensing interview, it's about an hour long, I'm sitting with three senior pastors of uh, area AG churches, and we spend the entire time focused on the 8th, of the 16 Assemblies of God fundamental truths. The eighth fundamental truth says, the initial physical evidence of baptism in the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. All right? You you understand what I'm saying? So like all Christians, Pentecostals believe that everyone who becomes a Christian through profession of faith in Jesus, receives the Holy Spirit. But Pentecostals, not all of them, but most of them, Assemblies of God included, believe that Christians can have a second experience of being baptized or immersed in the Holy Spirit and that the evidence of that kind of immersion or baptism is receiving the gift of tongues. So... If you don't speak in tongues, right, you've not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So there's kind of this two tier, uncomfortable, like, okay, so we all got to be baptized in the Spirit to speak in tongues. Well, I don't believe that. And here I am trying to get licensed so I can pastor this church that's already paying me. I think a more helpful understanding of Scripture is that we all receive the Holy Spirit when we become Christians and that we can continually be filled. That's, you know, be filled with the Spirit over time and to exercise gifts as the Spirit enables. All right, I think the picture that's painted for us in the Gospels and Acts is of a dynamic, ongoing dependence on the Spirit who empowers us for ministry and not sort of a one-time experience that somehow catapults us to a different level of... uh, spirituality and experience, right, or holiness. So in my mind, there's always more of God. There's always more of the Spirit to be experienced than we have as yet. Well, I was licensed. Again, more because of how, how awkward the situation would have been if they hadn't, right? I'd already been hired. This is a small church. It was not a big... Big fish. I mean, it was a um, and as soon as I got, you know, back to the church and pastoring for a few months, I realized I was pastoring a church for recovering Pentecostals. Right? Again, a couple more of the obvious downside of Pentecostalism, we kind of mentioned this before, is when there's this kind of pressure to appear holy as a result of being spirit-filled, which, you know, unfortunately, is pressure to be hypocritical. Uh, you know, I, I went to my licensing thing in some nice dress slacks and a dress shirt, and I was the only person there not in a three-piece suit. Called Becky. I said, Becky, what are you wearing? You're coming up. Please put on a dress. <laughs> right? You know. It, unfortunately, that's just kind of the culture. You know, you, If you have the Holy Spirit, then you've got to look better than you really are. Right? And what people wanted at this church was something that was... And again, I'm... I have a... I love... I'm going to cry. I love the assembly, so don't take this wrong. I had a great experience, but there's a downside to everything. And these people wanted something more uh, transparent, more real, you know, more humble, if you will. They also felt like there was this, you know, they'd been a part of too many churches where the emotionalism felt excessive. I actually had one of the camp, Chi Campus Ministry people that was coming to our church, came to me and, and was just grilling me about my preaching and said, and finally I just said, are you saying that you wish I was yell more?'" And she said, yeah. <laughs> and I said, okay, that's helpful. Uh, you just need to know that's never going to happen. <laughs> and, so, and, and, it was, and again, we, we left friends. She went to another church. But that's what she was, she grew up wanting. That was normal. That was, uh, you know, so we all, but... But most of the people who stayed at the church, that's not what they wanted, right? If you get what I mean. So there's also a theology in Pentecostalism that healing is in the atonement. Now, we believe that. evangelicals believe that. I mean, Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed, right? But this is the theology that says we can all expect healing every time we pray here and now because it's in the atonement. I don't believe that. The kingdom of God theology of the vineyard says, yeah, there's an already but not yet nature to that. Yes, we will all be healed in the hereafter. And when healing happens in the here and now, it's because of the atonement. Right? What happens with that kind of theology is that if somebody's not healed, who do you blame? You blame the victim. It's either their sin or their lack of faith, right? It's much more complicated than that. that you've heard me talk about that before if you've been here. So I worked very hard to foster a both-and environment at this church, but I continue to struggle with my own sense of hearing from God. But John Wimber believed that the primary reason Americans do not easily move into the supernatural is that we have inherited our worldview, our basic understanding of what's real and how things work, from kind of the rationalism of the Enlightenment. I think that's true. You know, one of the things I've noticed is that when you get into Christian uh, fiction or Christian movies, over and over again, they try to explain things like the problem of evil without ever mentioning Satan or the Holy Spirit or why prayer is difficult. It's like there's a whole picture from Scripture that's just absolutely missing from the evangelical explanation of things. But I felt like, okay, I've embraced the biblical worldview. How come I'm still struggling? Well, it goes deeper than that. We have to go through a paradigm shift, not just to kind of embrace all the different facets of the biblical reality. Uh, we have to understand that when God speaks, well, let me, I'll, I'll make a question. When God speaks, how does he speak to you? Or how do you think God's going to speak? When Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing, what's he describing? That's John five nineteen. for those of you who have evangelical roots. Well, he's using our imagination, right? I mean, in Jesus' mind's eye, he's seeing what God's wanting to do, and then he joins with God in praying for that. And I think that's the model for us. But my main problem, having grown up in the West, is I don't trust my imagination. Right? Imagination means imaginary, which means it's not real, which means it's fake, which means it's made up. It's fiction. Right? So I have struggled for three decades with trusting the prompts God gives to my imagination, whether it's something I see in my mind's eye or think I hear, I struggle to trust it. So three years ago, all right, and honestly, this is why I've since leaving the pastorate, I've uh, been a part of Vineyard Churches, because I feel like I need to be in a place that's struggling to, for the radical middle. I have I have an evangelical background, but I believe we need a in-the-moment-now relationship with God in which we receive adherence him speak. So uh, three years ago, I read a book that was incredibly helpful to me. And if you're going to read Quest for the Radical Middle, I suggest you read this one first. It's called Seeing is Believing by Greg Boyd. It's a little book. But he's also arguing against the kind of rational Western Enlightenment worldview and saying, look, what happens... We have to get to a place where what happens in our imaginations we trust and is as real as our experience in the world. Right? His argument is that not only does God use your imagination, it's the main way, the primary way in which he speaks to us, the way that the spirit moves. So we have to learn how to begin to trust it. So bottom line... The quest for the radical middle, or what I call the both-and kind of church experience, is that Jesus and the Spirit are interdependent and complementary and not at odds with each other. Amen? Wouldn't it be ridiculous if the Trinity actually reflected the division of American churches between Pentecostalism and Evangelicalism? It just makes no sense, does it? I mean, that's why the New Testament writers call the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. Not just once, but 23 times. That's why they tell us that the Spirit is the teacher of truth. I mean, we, t- we know that Jesus is the truth, but the Spirit is the teacher of truth. It tells us that six times. That's why Jesus and God, in John's Gospel says, Look, when the Spirit comes, He's going to glorify me. He's going to remind you of everything I've already said. And, and this is one that's really important, this is John 16:13, 14. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So there's that pre- in the present moment word that you're going to need to know, right? Now in the vineyard, we embrace the authority of the Bible. We believe God is actually here in the room right now. We want to be a people who know and believe the truth of the scriptures and who are also awake to the nearness or the numinous of God in the present moment, through the Spirit. The way I would summarize this is that we, we, want, we both want a biblical theology and we want a biblical experience. Now, I was recently reminded of just how hard the, it is to keep this balance. So we, Becky and I had a nephew come and visit us for a week and we had a bunch of different conversations. And One of them I was suggesting to him That as a Christian, we ought to have experiences of God speaking to us in the here and now. Guess what his response was? How did he react? He said, quote, that is totally subjective. (laughs) To which I said, yeah, I get that. Absolutely, it's subjective. Underneath that comment is his underlying fear of, what's the word? It's dangerous, right? It's not just subjective, it's dangerous. How many of you feel that way? Come on, be honest. We all have felt that way at some point, right? If you've been a part of a weird Pentecostal meeting, you will have felt this. (laughs) All right? So we're stuck, right? We're stuck because if we believe in the inspiration and authority of Scripture, what the Scriptures present to us, is a story and a world that is full of supernatural intervention of God and human reaction human interaction with the holy spirit right is that i mean read through the book of acts and tell me what happens if it's not the spirit telling this person to do this i mean all this crazy stuff right that's what we should expect in our own experience as believers but the subjectivity of receiving communication from the holy spirit here and now has to be, and this is, this is the anchor, this is the safety net that we operate with, is balanced by the authoritative picture we have of God in the Bible. And if you can remember back to winter and spring, part of what we were trying to hammer away at is that Jesus is the supreme revelation of God, who he is and what he's like. Right? So you don't have to compare it to the whole of Scripture. If you feel like you're getting stuff from the, from the Spirit... All you have to ask is, is this consistent with what I know about Jesus? And if it is, go for it. Take the risk. Put it into prayer. Ask the person. You know, I just have the sense that maybe blah, 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 blah. See if it rings true. Does that make sense? That's the tension that we just cannot escape as believers. Unless you have a cessationist theology. Which I don't. The manifestation of the spirit is not supposed to be the exception; it's supposed to be the norm. So let me close. I'm, so far, I've been telling my story. I haven't used any scripture. That, I mean, I've used a couple from John, but let me just close. I just want. I'm not even going to do an exposition of this passage. I just want to leave a phrase in your head. Uh, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. There's this great, it's near the end of Jesus' ministry. He's in Jerusalem in the temple, and there's a group of Jewish leaders called the Sadducees. And these are Jewish people who did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. So they come to Jesus in order to trap him, and they put put a question to him that involves this hypothetical situation. They say, Jesus, a man marries this woman, and then he dies. According to Jewish law, it's incumbent on that man's brother to marry his widow. So she marries him. He dies. So the next brother marries her, right? And on and on. At the resurrection, Jesus, whose wife is she going to be? (laughs) Ha, 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 right? We got you. Resurrection is ludicrous. How in the world, if this is the Jewish law, how in the world is that going to get resolved? So Jesus has a wonderful answer, and I wish we had the time to exposit it all, but no. But here's the way he begins. Jesus says, is this not the reason you are wrong? That you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Isn't that an interesting response? You're wrong because you don't know the scriptures. That God, I mean, God does resurrect people from the dead. God is a God of the present tense, not the past tense. And the power of God. that God created the world. How, how difficult is it going to be for him to resurrect people from the dead? Right? But that's, that's what our experience should be as believers. That we know the truth of the scriptures and it's married to an experience of God's power in our life. Amen? Well... That went longer than I hoped. This is the danger of me telling stories as opposed to looking at a passage of Scripture. Uh, What I really wanted to do was have some time to pray and do ministry. Uh, I still remember when Doug Gray came and did that conference with us at InterVarsity, one of the things he had us do was he just said, get into Paris and pray for each other. Just wait on the Holy Spirit. See what you get. Don't evaluate it or edit it, just pray what you get. It was a wonderful experience. Really a great experience. I'm not going to make you do How many of you are uncomfortable right now? Okay, <laughs> If you're uncomfortable, good. That's the challenge. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but if any of you want to receive prayer, uh, that's what will happen up here after we close in just a moment. Uh, and that's what God wants to do. But God loves us God wants to see his reign, his rule, his kingdom enter our lives, our community, our country, our world. So just come forward if you need prayer. You can share it. People will listen on your behalf and pray for you. Amen? All right, let's close. Lord, I'm I'm thankful for you as a trinity, that you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I, I thank you that discipleship in the Gospels, it's captured in the phrase, following Jesus. And that in the Epistles and Acts, it's captured in the phrase, walking in the Spirit. Lord, you said that it's better for you to go, because if you stayed, the crowd would get too big and nobody could hear your voice. But that when you left, the Holy Spirit would come, and we would all be able to have an experience being in your presence moment to moment, day to day. I pray that you would come, send your spirit. There's more of you than we've experienced thus far. We want to know you more deeply, more intimately, to be able to hear your voice, to discern, to practice being partners with you in ministry in this world. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So welcome to get up, mingle, move around, but Prayer team can come forward. If you'd like to receive prayer, just come up front. Thanks.